Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here on a gorgeous Sunday. Um, I think the high today is 80, which is amazing. And then uh, so we're, we're, we're getting there. By, by November, we'll be in the 70s. And then uh, in December, we'll be in uh, the single digits. So uh, Arkansas weather is very, very strange. So, But welcome to church this morning. If you are just joining us, uh, thanks for being here. We've been in a series called Don't Be That Couch. And uh, I want to take a few moments to recap because we are on part four this morning. And I've got this week and next week, and then I'll wrap up this series. But uh, week one... I compared religion to my grandparents' couch, okay? And uh, the reason I did that is because uh, I talked about a new purchase or that that couch was exciting at first, and then over the years, it really became something that had more rules than enjoyment to it. So it became something that we guarded and protected uh, rather than built relationship with, and uh, I talked about how my grandparents covered it in plastic to keep food and coffee and tea, and all the grandkids had had rules on it, and it really became something that became kind of sacred to them, and uh, nobody sat on it. And so it went years and years and years like that, and it got uglier and ug- uglier, and, and uh, everybody just kind of walked around it, and that's how we can do our own religion sometimes is to uh, cover it and protect it and try to shield it and nobody enjoys it anymore and we end up being just like that that old couch. Well then in week two I talked about the ecclesia or the gathering that Jesus spoke of, how important it was uh, for the sake of being together and that he said even when we die it's not going to end here. This isn't going to stop. So um, when Peter dies, it's going to keep going, and when James dies, it's going to keep going, and when I die and I'm resurrected and go to the Father, it's going to keep going. And um, I talked about how each and every one of us are a part of the body, and how um, all of us have, have to choose what does that mean for you. So uh, when it comes to serving and giving and pushing a vision forward of a gathering, what does that look like for you personally? And then last week, I challenged you to consider how being that couch could lull you into comfort. We talked about the Sinai experience for the children of Israel and how there came a command in Exodus 33 to leave Sinai, but it was such a great place for them and a place where they had heard from God and where they had rested and where some amazing things had happened. But in Exodus 33, God says, I got more for you. And so it presented this question for all of us, what is next? And that's kind of what I challenged you with in, in the end was to say, what's next for you? So uh, be willing to walk away from your Sinai experience. Don't be lulled into religious comfort. And then today, I'm going to spend my time talking about how couches and churches can be the same because they are both designed for connection. 
And so when we think about a couch, we think about people coming in and we say, hey, have, have a seat, pick a seat. Some people gravitate toward a chair in, in your home. Some people gather on the couch. And then we sit and we talk and we catch up and we share life and we share stories. And sometimes you shed tears and sometimes you laugh. And uh, sometimes you just sit in silence and you're just together and it means something. It's, it's personal to you. And the church can be the very same thing if it's initiated, if it's engaged. And I believe when Jesus taught, when we look at scripture that reflects the local assembly, um, we see that this is one of the big things on his heart in when it comes to the ecclesia is just being present, just here, just having your spirit here. And I want to peel back another layer to that onion and say that you can be here physically, but not here mentally. You can already be thinking about next week or what's for lunch or what, what you're going to do, um, you know, uh, over, over some break that's coming up that you've earned. And your mind can quickly leave this place. And even though your body's sitting here in a, in a chair, your mind is gone. You can be spiritually absent this morning. You can be in this place, and even though this is a place where we address spirituality, and it's our number one point to point people toward Christ, you can be here physically, you can hear what I'm saying, you can experience worship, you can see a friend, but spiritually you're wounded, or you're hurt, or you're confused, or you're discouraged, and because of that, you kind of shut the door when you walk in. You're here, but you're not here. So the intentionality of what church is, um, is determined by all of us. And that's what makes our unity great. It's why uh, I believe that in the upper room experience, it took so long for the Spirit to come because they had to get in unity. And they had to get to a place where they were really all present and all in and all dedicated and all aiming toward the same goal, which was to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I want to take you today and use as, as my text an old story. I want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 if you got your Bible or Bible app. So I want you to go there. And I'm going to read a text that is very popular. And I'm not going to preach what you think I'm going to preach. So when I start talking about it, don't say, man, I've heard this a thousand times and clock out. Just stay with me. 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to read or paraphrase about 17 verses here. So let's read this together. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David stayed in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and she was beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Anybody else find her name curious? Like, I think, I think this name is not her real name. I, I, I think it was given to protect the innocent. I think, I think the author was like, um, so tell me what her name was again. They were like, um, uh, I'm talking about the woman in, 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 in the bathtub. Yeah, her name was Bath, uh, Bath, she, Bath, she, Bath, Sheba. <laughs> There's got to be more to this, right? There's got to be. 
This woman's in a bathtub and her name is suddenly Bathsheba. I can't be the only person thinking that every time I read it. I always go, "Uh uh-huh, every time I read it. So the wife of Uriah the Hittite in verse 4, David sends messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. Verse 5, she conceived, sent word to David, said, hey, I'm pregnant. Verse 6, David sent this word to Joab. Okay, now Joab is leading the whole army. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so he's got a plan. This, this is plan A. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to uh, David in verse 7. And when he came to him, David said, hey, how's Joab? How are the soldiers? How's the war going? And David said to Uriah, I want you to go down to your house and I want you to wash your feet. Now this, this was a customary saying, meaning I want you to go in. I want you to go inside. And we all know what plan A is here. So, in verse 9, it says, Uriah slept at the entrance to David's palace and all his master's servants and did not go in the house. And David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Hadn't you been gone a long time? Are you tired of sleeping in the open fields? Go home. Okay. But Uriah says to David, the ark, meaning the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah are all in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house, eat and drink, make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do it. Plan A's out. So plan B takes place in verses 12 and 13. I'm going to just paraphrase him. He tries to get Uriah drunk and send him home. So what I'm going to do is try to change the way you're thinking with alcohol, and then maybe you'll stumble home. This is going to be plan, plan B, but it doesn't work. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Watch this. And he sends it with Uriah. Uriah is carrying a letter describing his own death. And in verse 15, in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, this is plan C, and withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And verse 17 is where we'll end. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men fell. Moreover, moreover Uriah the Hittite died. Okay? Plan A fails, plan B fails, plan C is a winner. My question when I think about this text, when I want us to focus and how this relates to our series is simply this. How did Uriah really die? We think about sword, or we think about arrow. We think about the brutality of a trained army trying to defend its own walls. And we go, well, those guys did it. We imagine in our own minds what this scene must have looked like in the brutality of hand-to-hand, very personal combat. And that's how Uriah died. What killed Uriah? The sword, the javelin, arrows, the force of many fists. But the answer to all that is wrong. 
The answer is really found in verse 15, and I want to read it again. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fierce and withdraw from him. This was death by withdrawal. Death by isolation. We know that Uriah is an amazing warrior. He's obviously a man of character based upon this conversation that he's having with David. You know, my, my buddies, my commander, the ark of God, they're all sleeping in fields. I'm not going to go home. I'll just sleep outside your home until you send me back. And so when the fighting is so fierce, Joab's got his eye on him and he says, now do it. Now pull away. So conversations had been had. Like when I give you the word, leave him. I could talk about today, and I was very tempted to, to talk about church hurt, to talk about how many times we've been in an ecclesia, a gathering, and there's been purposeful withdrawal. Like, let's, let's get away from the odd family, the odd person, the person doesn't look like we look like, act like we like. Let's just withdraw from them and isolate them, and eventually those people are going to leave. Or you have people who have a very public sin, and we think to ourselves, well, that's different than my sin because my sin isn't found out. But this sin's bad. And I can't be seen hanging out with them. Let's withdraw from them. And rather than being the first people to go and gather around someone and help to heal and start the process of restoration, it turns into something where we withdraw and we isolate and even people of importance are giving the command to do so. It develops church hurt. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. But I am going to talk about death by withdrawal. Death via isolation. And I will tell you this, some of you are in a room today full of people and you are dying. Every part of your life, you're stiff-arming. I don't want to get, get to know you. I don't want you to know, know my story. I'm embarrassed. The last person I loved, the last person who said they loved me, hurt me. And now all I want to do is slip in, slip out. Now isolate. Death by, by withdrawal. Now I don't know, and you don't either, what truly hurt Uriah more. Was it the ferocity of his foes or was it the abandonment of his brothers? What hurt worse? The fist, the javelin, the sword, or the knowledge that you got left? Maybe he had already died before anything ever pierced him through. It was death by isolation. A recent study by Harvard says that 36% of adults report serious loneliness. Okay, 
About half of those report that no one has ever asked them, how are you? How are you? How's life? How's your marriage? How are you personally, man? Are you making it? 63% of young adults are having symptoms of anxiety and depression that is directly connected to loneliness. This thought of, I don't have anybody. Technology, though incredible, has created less time to connect in person. And this has compounded an already lonely state for many. Heavy social media users are significantly more likely to feel alone and isolated and left out and without companionship due to its trap of comparisons. Like, I can't be them. I might as well give up. I'll never own that or drive that or live there or go on that trip. My life will never be that. I I don't know who my, my people are, where my crowd is. So they take steps further and further and further back, thinking that they're getting left behind and left out, and it creates this pattern of isolation. Craig Rochelle says, the fastest way to kill something good is to compare it to something else. You can have something in your life that's great and grand and vibrant and thriving, and the moment you compare it to something else, it doesn't look as shiny. It doesn't look like you're doing as well as you thought you were before you saw it. So it's, it has a default trap to it. The symptom of being lonely has doubled since 1980, with now 40% of young adults reporting that they have no one. Four in 10 young adults are saying, I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody to hang out with, go watch a movie, check on me. Um, you know, if, if something happened to me, I might be there a couple, three, four days a week before somebody even notices I'm going. That increase is coming at 1% annually. And watch this. That is faster than the church in America is growing. Loneliness is growing faster than evangelical churches in America. Research continues to link isolation and loneliness to higher risk of health conditions, high blood pressure, obesity, a weakened immune system, anxiety, depression, reduction of cognitive ability, memory impairment, to name name a few. But let's look at isolation within our own walls, within our, our own entity, our own camp. Lifeway Research says the Christian church is growing worldwide at just over 1% annually, worldwide. However, simultaneously, the church in the U.S. is not growing at all. Zero growth. Barna says, one-third of practicing Christians disengaged from church during COVID. 33% of those that were routinely and regularly attending church stopped going, and the research is indicating they may never come back. 33%. Less than 50% of Americans are saying that they belong to a specific body of faith. Half. Say, I don't don't belong there, and I don't belong there, and I don't belong there either. Barna said 70% of Gen Z report they are not even interested in church, even when they were raised in it. 
that they're now saying, I'm not interested in church at all. Remember that what our text is teaching today, it's not the fight that that will kill you. It's the withdrawal that kills you. It's standing alone in your battle that will kill you. It's being on the front line of the fiercest fight of your life and not having anybody. Being there alone. Mental health services, and this this is great, but they shot through the roof during COVID because people said, I just, I was already in a bad spot and now I can't even go to the store. I, I can't go to a restaurant. I can't go to a movie. And I could do all those things by myself. But now it's just me and my thoughts. And it scares some people. Withdrawal will kill you. Bible scholars are telling us that the first mention of a word in Scripture is very important. It's actually a study technique called first mention. And what you do, you look at a word and you say, where's the first time this was mentioned in Scripture? And you go there and you find its context. And typically that first mention in Scripture will then form an arrow all the way through to the end of Scripture and you will see it tie a fine line through every book after book after book because we simply believe that it's been inspired by God. So the first mention of the word alone goes like this, Genesis 2. It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good. He knew if we were by ourselves, we would get into some trouble. So why is that important? Because before prayer was taught, before the importance of Scripture was given, before worship was ever performed and mentioned, God told us it's not good for you to withdraw. It's not good for you to be isolated. I'm going to give you three scriptures here about unity and togetherness and then tell you why they're so important. Deuteronomy 32.30 says this, one person can chase off a thousand in battle, but two people can make 10,000 flee for their lives. Matthew 18, 19, he says, I assure you, if two of you would agree about anything, my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. If two of you agree. James 5, verse 16, he says, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The outcome of those three three scriptures is simple. God promises his presence, his healing, an answer to prayer, and 10 times the efficiency that you can carry by yourself in just those three words. So the question today becomes this. Do we believe this enough to do something about it? Do we believe that this is true enough to fight through isolation and being withdrawn or being hurt or being discouraged or being frustrated or feel like like that somebody has done you wrong is it is is there something in you that says that this word is more important than how you feel and then if you will just re-engage ecclesia if you'll re-engage your body If you'll stop taking that wound and wrapping it in plastic like my grandparents' couch and saying, man, I just hope nobody sees it and nobody looks at it and nobody touches it and nobody spills anything on it. And if I just guard this long enough, I'll make it to heaven. You do not have to make it to heaven hurt. And I hope that's a word for somebody in the room today. 
You don't have to stay hurt. You don't have to stay disappointed. You don't have to stay offended. The unfortunate truth is, although all of this makes sense, I don't think there's anything I've said this morning that people would say, no, wait a second. All of this makes sense to us. We get it. We get our nature. But the unfortunate part is this. We live a life of what I'm going to call crowded isolation. We're crowded by our appointments, our task lists, our work obligations. Many seem to be lost in a haze of endless messages and notifications. A study has revealed that we're checking our phones 85 times a day. That can be up to five hours of browsing and app usage. We have more access to each other than any other generation in the history of the world, but we're leaving the church in droves. Why? Because we have forgotten the discipline of togetherness. The discipline of being together. Psalm 68 and 6 says, God places the lonely in families. And guess what? Your church is a family. These people around you can be family. These people around you can be a salve, can be a balm, can be a healing moment for you. Sometimes the right words and the right conversation over coffee or a meal or through a card or even a text or a short call can come from any person in this room and just bring relief to you. We've all done it. We've, we've, we've received or been on the receiving end of that. Somebody sat down and paused their life for a moment to encourage you or tell you that you were doing better than you think you're doing. And man, it welled up inside of you. It ministered to you. And you feel physically better. You slept better that, that night. Your heart rate dropped. You felt your anxiety drop. Tears welled up into your eyes. Why is that? Was it the words? No, it was the spirit behind the words. Minister to you. Because the ecclesia will heal you. How many of you know what an oxymoron is? I'm not talking about a moron. Some of y'all know exactly what that is. Okay, Oxymoron. An oxymoron is a group of words that do not go together. Things like pretty ugly or climb down or light syrup or mud bath, or jumbo shrimp, short sermon, things that don't go together. <laughs> but there's a really sad oxymoron, and that is this, isolated Christian. I'm a believer, but I'm on this road by myself. And if I were to ask you today why God placed you on this planet, I think the synopsis of that, the collective opinion would sound something like this, to glorify him with our lives. And that's a very religious answer, and it's correct, but it's incomplete. Let me explain this. I believe that there are two big decisions in your life, okay? And if you're a young person here today, listen up. I'm going to save you some, some time and trouble. Two huge decisions that you got to win at. The first one is this. Are you going to choose to serve Christ in your life and with your life? 
That is the number one question of priority for your entire existence. Because there are two major trajectories that follow that choice. The second one is this. Who are you going to live your life out with? Who are you going to marry? Who's going to be your inner circle? What people are going to walk with you? What people are going to have your back? What people are you going to meet with once a week and once a month and once a year? Who are these folks? These are big decisions. And so you've got to ask yourself, first, am I going to follow Christ? And second, where are my people? Where's my team? And we get this in almost every area of our lives. Every businessman in this room knows he cannot do his business or her business alone. You're going to hire a team. You're going to hire people because you get that you're not good at all of it. And if you were, as your vision expands, as you become more profitable, as people want more from you, they they can't have all of you. You got to hire somebody to duplicate yourself in. We get it everywhere. You can have the most gifted surgeon in the world standing over a body that is open, awaiting for his or her hands to get in there and do what maybe only three of them in the world can do. But there's 20 other people in that room to make it all come together. We get it everywhere, except church. I can follow God by myself. I don't need anything. I don't need anybody telling me. I don't need anybody talking me through it. When I have a hard time, I can face it by myself. I don't need it. I don't need wisdom. I don't need guidance. I don't need community. I don't need anybody sharpening me. I can sharpen myself. Me and God, we got a good thing going, and I don't need anybody else in this. We do not get it that Jesus himself is saying, listen, you got to have Some people, Jesus modeled this. He came, he found 12, and then he really poured himself into three. And if he does it, if he needs it, if he wanted it, then we should too. Many people truly feel like they don't need anybody. There's this great story about Muhammad Ali. And we all know him from uh, his, his interviews. And, and maybe some of you are at the age where you got to watch, watch him you know, on, on TV or, or something like that. But he was extremely confident. And he was on an airplane. And a stewardess was coming by and she was checking seatbelts. Walking by, walking by, walking by, and she sees him, and she says, sir, you need to to buckle your seatbelt. And he immediately said, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And she says, Superman don't need a plane either. Now buckle up. (laughs) The I don't need anything, and I don't need you, and I don't need the church, and I don't need all that. Man, somebody's got to tap the brakes on that, right? Somebody's got to be a voice that says the church is needed and you are needed and togetherness is needed. And so there is this moment in our text, and I'm going to end really quick. There's this moment in our text when Uriah, and I want you to go there with me. If you could just give me three minutes of energy to focus up right here, go with me on this. There's this moment when Uriah realizes that this is it. He realizes what's happened. He's having an epiphany. 
It just doesn't feel like other battles. This doesn't feel like other things he's done. This one feels different. He realizes that what he's experiencing is his own end. There are too many enemies to fend off, too many daggers to dodge, not enough real estate behind one shield to shade himself from an endless amount of blows. And I'm sure, as I'm standing here today, that because of who he was, I'm sure Uriah fought a few seconds more even after his heart had stopped. But eventually, no matter how trained, and no matter how courageous, the withdrawal will overwhelm you. And your hands gripping sword and shield will fall to your side and your knees to the ground. Death by isolation. So how do you prevent death by withdrawal? Let me go through this. Real quick, the first one. You got to settle in your heart what you believe about the church. I don't mean have a philosophy. I don't mean have a thought. I don't mean journal about it. I don't mean having highlighted a scripture that you think is good. I mean you got to settle it. This is what I believe about the ecclesia. And this is how I'm going to raise my family. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is what it's going to mean to me. And I'm going to pull the plastic off this couch in my life and I'm going to let people sit on it. And if coffee stains it and tea falls on it, it's just going to be a story to tell about what happened today. And we're going to laugh about it. We're going to talk about it because I'm willing to get in your life if you're willing to get in mine. you got to settle what you believe about it. If you believe Jesus taught the importance of gathering, and if you believe Jesus taught there's an agreement of spirit when we come together, if church is something you believe in, then choose it. Second, you got to be intentional. Okay? It was very intentional for Joab to leave Uriah. And if intentionality can be used for evil, intentionality can be used for good. And this means that I can purposefully go into someone's life. I can get involved in their life. And I'm not saying you got to know everything and be it everything and be all things to all people. But find your people. Find your tribe. Find your three or four. Meet with them. Love them well. Serve them. Minister to each other. That is the ecclesia. I'm not asking you to know 600 people. I'm asking you to know three, four. Live life with somebody. Have somebody over for dinner. Well, Kevin, you, don't, you haven't seen my house. I've got, I've got kids and we've got pets and I've got all this stuff. Well, then find three or four people who don't care. <laughs> Man, let me talk to you. Okay. Don't wait on your wife to talk you into church or to talk you out of your hobby. Make weekend a priority. I'm not bragging here, but I always say that my dad was not a pastor, but he's the best one I ever had. That's what I always tell people. He led our family. He's a blue-collar worker. You shake his hand today, they're calloused. He loves to work. He still works. 
loves it. And he would make rounds on Sunday morning. Everybody get up or I'm going to start throwing cold biscuits on people. Do you know what that means? Like a can of biscuits. He would throw them in our beds to get us moving. And if that didn't work, well, there was other things that came after that. But He got us up. He got us going. And you guys know how I was raised. And so occasionally I would tell my dad, I said, Dad, I don't feel good. I'm sick. And he said, it's a good thing we believe in healing. Get up, put some jeans on. We're going to pray over you, so get up. You, just, you were just going. You were going to do it. And you were going to say, he taught me how to serve. A pastor didn't teach me. He did. He made sure, I'm telling you little, little nuggets that stay with me. He would come to us every morning and say, do you have something to give? And I'd say, and I'd say no, of course I don't. You're my, you know, you're my bank account. He'd hand me a dollar, and I'd be embarrassed. And I'd be like, Dad, it's just a buck. He said, it's not about the amount. I want you to get used to, to putting something in there. I'd mow a yard. It'd be $10. He'd say, you need to give a dollar of that to God. i said, why does he need it? What is, he, what is God going to do with a dollar? He used to burn me up. I'd go to bed at night, and I'd look at the ceiling and say, what do you need with a dollar? What are you going to do with a dollar? Because I can use it. <laughs> The matchbox car I got my eyes on. I got to. Don't wait to be talked into doing it. Be intentional. Third, find some sticky friends. Sticky friends. Ones that stick. Ones that don't run off. I'm not saying you're always going to agree. I'm not saying that it's always going to be Incredible, because it's like family. When you get like that, you're like family. And sometimes you're jerks to each other. Sometimes you got to call each other your inner circle and say, "Forgive me, that was I was being a jerk." But you got to find some sticky people in your life to live life with. Every single one of the people that I subject myself to to be mentored by all have lifelong friends. And sometimes I have looked at my own life and said, "How do you do that?" They just stay at it. And I thought about Scripture because there was this moment. Jonathan and David, and Jonathan and Saul died the same day, but there was this time in David's life. He had gotten older. He was mature. He was calmed down. He had done everything that he wanted to do with his life. And he's sitting around thinking one day, and he says, hey, is there anybody left in Saul's house? So, man, I, I miss my friend. Is there anybody that I can bless? Like, Is there anybody I can go... He's thinking about that because he missed his buddy. He was a sticky friend. Paul and Silas thrown in jail. This is a scene to behold. Nothing like jail to bring you together. They're sitting there. Who knows? All beat up, blood tasting in their mouth. And one of them says to the other one, you want to sing? Silas was probably like, like Beyonce or something? Like, what are you? No, no, no. Like, let's... Let's lift up the name of the Lord together. Seriously. Right now. Let's do it. Man, the power of God came down on them. You know the rest of it. Sticky friends. People you sing with in jail. Those are sticky friends. Okay? Find some. 
I'm over on time, so I want to pray over you. Lord, I love you today. Man, I'm so thankful for our church. I'm so thankful for our church. I pray for every person in here who's lonely. God, I pray for every person in here who is in the biggest fight of their life and feels like they have no one. God, will you help us? Help us to be a church that loves each other, that checks on each other. Give everybody in this room to three or four friends. God, your word tells us to have a friend. I got to show myself friendly. And I pray that spirit on all of us. A friendly spirit. God, give everybody in here some sticky friends. God, I'd take a good friend over a check in the mail any day. God, I'd take a good friend over a better vehicle any day of the week. Lord, will you bless our church with friendship. Let us see the importance of the gathering. Let us pull the plastic off. Invite people to sit on the couches of our lives. I thank you for it today, Father. Bless our people. Combat anxiety and depression and loneliness in the room today. Let healing come to this room, Father. Lord, if anyone's hurt at our church, let healing come. God, if we have underpastored, if we have failed somebody, if we've said something stupid, forgive us, God. Let healing come in this room today in Jesus' name.